Welcome to Macquarie Street, the national political podcast coming to you from the crucible of Australian democracy. Here's your host, Lyle Shelton. Okay, it's Christmas. Welcome to the final episode of the Macquarie Street political podcast for 2021. On this week's show, I speak to two of the brightest young emerging voices of the centre-right. I caught up with South Australian Liberal Senator Alex Antic via video link from compulsory Medi Hotel quarantine after he was sensationally detained by police at Adelaide Airport. You won't want to miss that interview. I also managed to speak with Jake Thrupp, a young man who works as Alan Jones producer, first on Sky News and now with the great man in his new venture, which is uh, direct to the people via social media, streaming Monday to Thursdays. Both young men will fill you with hope that intelligent voices are rising to counter the radical left and its attempt to take our nation further down the path of meaninglessness. But first, a couple of brief reflections on 2021. It's been a tough year. The Christian Democratic Party is in turmoil because of internal factional warfare right at the time Australia most needs a Christian political party raising up strong Christian voices in the parliaments around our nation. I don't want to dwell too much on this except to say uh, please pray over Christmas and the New Year period for the party. If you're not sure what I'm talking about there's more information on my website lyleshelton.com.au that's lyleshelton.com.au now we go into the new year with religious freedom unresolved four years down the track from same-sex marriage becoming law. Freedom for people to freely speak and promote in community the idea that human flourishing is best served by the time-honoured definition of man-woman marriage is under increasing pressure. Our elites in the media and the culture hate this idea and redefining marriage in law was their way to further deauthorize a key tenet of Christianity. With speculation of a March election, the Morrison government's religious discrimination bill may not even see the light of day. If Labor is elected, I don't believe it will be a priority for Prime Minister Albanese, or if it is, it will be weakened even further. Christian schools will certainly lose the right to uphold a Christian ethos on marriage and gender in their school communities. Also this year, we saw Queensland politicians legislate suicide as healthcare with euthanasia now rebadged voluntary assisted dying. The momentum pushed a similar euthanasia bill over the line in New South Wales in their lower house with the upper house uh, to vote in the new year. Abortion to birth laws were passed in the Northern Territory and South Australia. Virtually all Australian states now allow abortion to birth and euthanasia. We really have embraced the culture of death as a nation. The last five years have seen the floodgates open after decades of holding the line through the good work of family and Christian lobby groups and of course good people in the parliaments. But resolve has now worn down and courage has waned. The church has by and large remained silent. These are sobering times. As I said, it's been a tough year. But 
There are some green, there's some green shoots. There are signs of pushback against the radical gender fluid ideology, that idea that children's gender is on a spectrum and can be changed despite their biology. Legislation is being passed in states in America to ban experimental treatments on children uh, in places like Texas and Arkansas. More and more stories of harm of children and adolescents are emerging as young people regret having their breasts or genitals cut off and being consigned to a life of infertility because a safe schools program or a character with the wiggles told them their gender was fluid. The pushback on gender fluid ideology is welcome news and it is of course being hotly contested by the LGBTQI political movement who want to double down on the gains they made through the 2017 marriage campaign. But if figures like JK Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, continue to stand up for the truth about gender at great personal cost, there's hope. And here at home, the Liberal Senator Claire Chandler is pushing legislation to save women and girls sport from biological males. Why Scott Morrison doesn't make this a government bill is mystifying. But at least Senator Chandler is fighting for the truth. That is too rare a thing in our politics. Nothing better demonstrates the overreach of the rainbow left than its assault on girls sport. Take a look at this clip of University of Pennsylvania swimmer Leah Thomas, born Will, crushing the girls at a recent swimming meet. All right, here we go. This is a tape of uh, Leah Thomas, born Will Thomas. And um, the lefties have just gone a little too far with this one. Uh, Will Thomas is six foot three inch strapping young man, uh, coursing with testosterone. And here he is in a girl's swimsuit competing with the girls. And uh, here he comes, here he comes in lane four. We can see him right here, right? He's moving twice as fast as anybody else. And here's the final lap. And Will is done. And then one of these girls must be second, right? No, no, uh, they have more to swim. How about this one here? Maybe this is second? No, she's got more to swim. How about these girls? Maybe these girls could be in second. No, we, we don't even see second yet. And, and, and there's Will just sitting there waiting. Hasn't exited the pool. Oh, finally, hey, I think this might be it. This could be a second place finisher. Ah, now let's listen to the crowd. The crowd knows the real winner. There you go. It's only a matter of time before the public says no more to the LGBTIQA plus political agenda for our children. Also cause for optimism as we head into 2022 is a case in the US Supreme Court which could lead to the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the 1973 judgment which imposed abortion on demand upon all 50 US states. Former President Donald Trump's appointments to the bench have shifted the balance to a pro-life majority. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, it will again be up to democratically elected state governments to decide if unborn babies should be killed on demand. And many states are expected to put an end to this practice and provide better choices to mothers. A decision is expected mid-year and it will be closely watched around the world, including here in Australia. The green shoots I've just mentioned are emerging because Watering them are people with courage who speak up and who act in politics. My prayer is that 2022 will be a year where Christians and conservatives find more courage to speak and to act. 
You might not be interested in politics, but politics sure is interested in you and your children. No more silence in the face of evil because, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously said, God will not hold us guiltless. We're seeing the fruit of courage despite the setbacks we've endured. We just need to press on. That's why you're going to love the two guests coming up on this week's show. Don't go away. It's interesting to me that some of the loudest voices calling for our society to return to Christian roots are not Christians. Christmas is a time when we notice the secular left's junking of the advent of Christ through replacement phrases like happy holidays, etc. But here's Alan Jones pushing back. But you've only got to walk through the streets of our capital cities, Brisbane, Sydney, Adelaide, Perth, Hobart, to see the progressive erosion of Christian traditions. Do the Christmas decorations affirm the celebrations that should be part of this season? Do we hear Christmas carols ringing out? Do we see Christmas cards which now say Happy Holidays, not Happy Christmas? Christianity is a universal religion, the foundation of Western civilization. Are we embarrassed to proclaim that? Do we teach that Christianity is the foundation of Western civilization? Great stuff, Alan. The more anyone with any understanding of history observes our cultural slide, the more they realize the cause is our abandonment of God. Well, you're gonna love my next interview. Jake Thrupp is Alan Jones' producer. Uh, he's a great thinker in his own right, and he's just recently edited an anthology of essays from some of Australia's leading conservative thinkers. It's called Australia Tomorrow, and it's published by Connor Court. Well, it's absolutely fantastic to have as my guest this afternoon on Macquarie Street uh, Political Podcast, Jake Thrupp. Uh, for those who are watching live, uh, you're, you're getting this uh, as it comes. And for those who will be watching this next week, uh, you'll, you'll see it on the Macquarie Street Podcast. But Jake, it's fantastic to have you with me. Jake is the author of this, uh, or he's the editor of this anthology uh, of political essays about Australia's future. Australia Tomorrow, it's called. It's uh, excellent reading. And I was really keen to get him... Uh, on the show to talk about this. Jake is um, the producer for Alan Jones, who's just launched into a new uh, venture with uh, Australian Digital Holdings. And I thought, Jake, um, perhaps you could correct my introduction of you and just tell us a little bit about this latest exciting venture that uh, is literally only a week or two old with uh, the great man, Alan Jones. Yeah, thanks, Lyle. And it is good to uh, be on here. Look, what we've launched is a new digital television show. So essentially... Uh, bypass the networks and we just felt that the, um, the the way to get the message out there is exactly like what you're doing right now, direct to the people. I think people follow broadcasters. They don't necessarily follow, uh, you know, organisations or, or a channel per se. Um, they, they, we are at a critical time where uh, people trust certain people or they, they know what views they've got. I'm a firm believer in that, that's inherent in them, that they know sort of what, what where they sit on the political fence and they want to um, follow that person. So what we're doing is we're doing Alan Jones Direct to the People and it's Monday to Thursday, 8pm um, and you can watch it on Facebook, on the Alan Jones Australia Facebook page. You can w watch it on YouTube, uh, Alan Jones Australia YouTube or alanjones.com.au. So our first week was uh, 
Obviously, we had a few tech glitches, uh, which yeah, was to you, be expected. You crashed, crashed on your first night, I hear. We, we I mean, did, we a did. a great problem to have when the internet is overloaded with people trying to get to your show. Well, that's the point. There was a few out there sort of uh, laughing, but I think it's a good, it's a good, it's a good problem to have when you've got three hundred and fifty thousand people trying to click on one website in a window of about ten minutes. Uh, look, we always thought we, you know, there was a bit of a following there. But that is a massive following. Yeah. So the first show had around one hundred and seventy-five thousand views, which was. Excellent. We had the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet on. We had Matt Kennevan on, the Queensland uh, National uh, Senator, and uh, we've had a we've had a really good week. A really good week. We will broadcast uh, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday next week. Take a little break over Christmas, and we'll be back in the new year. And it's part of a company called Australian Digital Holdings. So uh, we we hope to. Uh, we will. We hope to introduce more content in the new year, more broadcasters, uh, and we just we're all about strong opinions. Essentially, yeah. look, I think it's a really exciting development. Uh, this is the alternative media really coming into its own. Uh, we all love Sky mm-hmm. News, and I've been an admirer of yeah, Alan, definitely uh, from his Sky News days. Disappointed that he's he's not there anymore, but uh, it's fantastic that these platforms now exist. Um, Jake, uh, I I am. Um, I was really keen to get you on here when I heard about uh, this book, as I mentioned at the start, and I heard you on a uh, Connor Court uh, launch of the book, uh, Connor Court being the, um, the publisher mm-hmm. uh, of this uh, book, great conservative uh, publisher of centre-right ideas in this country, and, and thank goodness for them. But I was really impressed with uh, you as a, a, as a young thinker. Obviously, you've been mentored by someone like Alan Jones, who's got a very mm-hmm. sharp mind on the, on the centre-right, and, you know, not everyone may, you know, we, we probably all yeah. have our... Um, agreements, disagreements. Alan, as you say, he's got strong opinions. I, I agree with most of what he says. Um, I, I really have a great affinity uh, for him coming from Ackland. Uh, I grew up in Toowoomba, uh, which is the big oh, spot just, just to the, uh, the east of yeah. Ackland. So uh, I love where he come from and his roots, but I love the ideas that um, you've put together here and the writers you've assembled. And you say that you've put this book together um, as a way to sort of push back on the nihilism of contemporary uh, Australian mm. life. Um, Nihilism is a word that's not used very much. Um, just, just unpack that for us and the reason why you put these writers and these ideas together. Well, Lyle, I have felt for a long time that we are breeding this massive cultural self-doubt. Uh, we are basically, it's a very clumsy thing to say, but we're basically teaching people to hate our country. That's what I that's what I see. I do see that. That's just my honest opinion. People out there may disagree with that, but when I see uh, people protesting in the street, um, uh, uh, students skipping school for climate strikes, this sort of stuff, I mean, this is a result of people not having faith in something uh, or uh, faith in a, in a religion or something. So they are adopting these causes uh, with this religiosity and therefore uh, placards, this sort of stuff. And I just think that's not that's not what we're about. We've got a lot to be proud of. Our, you know, we've done a lot of we've we've had many great achievements uh, essentially. Um, sure, there's historical uh, things which are uncomfortable, events which occurred, and but we 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 learn from them and we move on. I think to judge today's standards um, or judge a past event event by today's standards is not the right thing to do. Yep. So I just see. Uh, I see people just not 
passionate, not patriotic about who we are, the country we are. And that's why I felt it was so important to give us a fresh sense of mission. And, and that's why I thought, well, I was actually, I was speaking with Tony Abbott actually about, it. I said, what do you think of this? What, what, what do you, what do you think I should do? I'm thinking about putting a book together. He said, great idea. Go, go for it. Go for it. I thought, yeah, okay, I will. So I've met a lot of really great thinkers, centre-right thinkers yeah. over the last three, four years um, since I, I'm actually from Tweed Heads. So I moved down about three or four years down to Sydney and um, uh, look, I've met a lot of great people. So I made a few phone calls, uh, met with a few people and said, hey, I'd like you to write in this book. I don't want it to be basically pessimistic or I don't want it to sort of dump on the current government of the day. That's not what it's about. It's actually about what does the next decade of centre-right governance look like? Uh, how do we modernise, but how do we also remain conservative and and preserve what needs to be preserved, essentially? And how do we teach people to be proud, uh, to be patriotic, and what's the vision? I mean, I, I, I look at the day-to-day politics and I don't see any vision. I see things that are just put in the too hard basket. And, and instead of going out there and into the, into the sort of the, uh, the marketplace and saying, hey, we are conservatives. We're proud to be conservatives. Uh, we aren't radical or rat bags or anything. We just we we believe in certain things, and this is our this is our take on this debate. So let's shape it in that way. Instead, the left come out; they're always on the front foot, and we have to defend everything. And I'm just so over that. I think we really need to mobilise ourselves. And I would hope that this book, Australia Tomorrow, acts as a manifesto for a future coalition government. Look, I think it, it does that, um, Jake, and I, I totally agree with you. We, we are on the back foot all the time, and it's fantastic mm-hmm. to see things like this, which are front foot initiatives and produced by someone who is obviously, you're a bit younger than me, but you, I think <laughs> you represent the next generation. But some of the writers you've got here, you've got Tony Abbott, who you mentioned, obviously Alan Jones, mm-hmm. Morris Newman, and I want to come to his essay in a moment, but uh, he's also the chairman yeah. of Australian Digital Holdings, the, the new platform That's that right. Alan's working on. So some great collaborations there. You've got Amanda Stoker, Gina Reinhart, Campbell Newman, Brenda Nelson, who I heard speak mm. last night at uh, the, the John Howard oration. Uh, the Menzies the, thing. Menzies yeah. Research Institute, fantastic. Yeah. Um, so many others, Rita Hanapai, Jacinta Price, um, Indigenous Issues. Mm. I mean, Adam Crichton, um, his essay was a little bit controversial for me as a conservative, but but uh, you, you mentioned that um, so great writers. I really encourage people to get hold of this book. You mentioned that um, it's that that our opponents in this culture war um, uh, have a religious fervor. I was really impressed on the uh, the second night of Alan's new show on Australian Digital Holdings, him making a full throated defence of um, of Christianity and its place in Australia. Now, obviously, I'm a Christian. As far as I know, I don't think Alan is, but he's always someone who has defended. Christian values and the Christian ethos, and, and I don't presume to know where you stand. But the thing that I'm picking up from centre-right commentators like Alan and uh, so many others, so many in this book, is that um, our Christian culture, our Judeo-Christian heritage, is something that we really need to stand up for because that is the basis of our country. It is under attack. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, well, I, I mean, I went to a, a Catholic primary school St. Anthony's in Kingscliff. I went to St. Joseph's in Benora for high school. And then I actually finished off at Lindisfarne Anglican Grammar School. So look, and I was an altar server. Uh, you know, I, we attended mass. So it, it, it is, 
it, it really builds character, that faith. I think it's so important to have faith. And, again, I think the trashing of uh, the constant trashing of, of Christianity by those in the elite side of the media and in politics, the political class, uh, where they sort of pretend that uh, it doesn't shape people and shape our, our culture and community, I think that's really, uh, it, it, it has not helped us. It has not helped us. And again, that's what this nihilism in contemporary life mm. is now. It's for people need to belong, uh, Lyle, as you know, they need to belong. And, and when they feel they don't belong, they sort of get in their groups and they all go, oh, oh, well, how, how can we band together and believe in something? Well, I mean, everyone needs a, a purpose as, yeah. to, as to why they wake up in the morning. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there, unfortunately, uh, whose purpose is to uh, cancel people who they don't agree with, uh, to, again, write placards, often misspelt, and, uh, and go into uh, the city for the day and, and hold them up and, and do their bit. And, and I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't hate these people either. I mean, I, I, I actually I feel a bit sorry for them that they feel that that's what they need to do each day. That's their purpose. Um, yeah. when the, see, and that's the thing with the conservative uh, conservatives in general, or, or, or you know, even coalition supporters, diehard voters uh, for our side, uh, because we are waking up each day, and we people have families uh, to attend to, they've got work to go to, uh, they have a purpose. They actually don't have enough time to mobilise like the left do, yeah. and that's why I think I feel. Uh, I, I often feel down about how lethargic our side is yeah. and and uh, we are there. I mean, that's where Scott Morrison is, is, is correct. There are the quiet Australians. Mm-hmm. We are a majority, a silent majority, uh, and we come out when we need to come out and support things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the day-to-day, the narrative always looks like that the left are, are on the winning side and they actually aren't. They actually aren't. And, and that's why I'm very grateful to Connor Core Publishing for that they really jumped on this idea. Anthony jumped on this idea. Yeah. He loved the, the idea of it. And, and, we, and we got it out there. And I think we've sold about 6,000, 7,000 copies. Wow, mate, that's fantastic. Yeah, and Anthony, very of course. Good for um, Australia. That, that is fantastic. That's in sort of bestseller mm-hmm. territory. So congratulations on that. And, and well done. You mentioned Anthony, yeah. Anthony Capello. Uh, he and his yeah. wife Julie run uh, Connor Court there up there in Brisbane. Fantastic people, Jake. Mm-hmm. As as I uh, look at the um, the essays, I sort of discerned um, what I think are, are sort of three key themes that are coming through the book. And you've already touched on one uh, when you mentioned cancel culture. So this this idea of freedom really important. I think we all know how the left is trying to cancel uh, conservative viewpoints. But I think the other theme is prosperity. Um, uh, you, you mentioned the importance, you know, for us to have um, a, a good economic base. The energy debate which uh, yeah. is really um, gutting our prosperity. And, and you had some, some writers talking about the nuclear issue, mm. nuclear energy. Just unpack that a little for us and how that can undergird our prosperity. Well, I, really, I, I really believe in nuclear energy and I actually struggle. Um, I, I struggle to um, basically handle why. why I, I struggle to understand why we don't touch it. I actually, it's funny, actually, I, I spoke with a federal MP about half an hour ago um, and he said the same thing. He said the same thing. I said, mate, what? why don't we touch nuclear energy ever? I mean, we never want to. That's the future. Why don't we, again, get on the front foot where we aren't, uh, we aren't sort of rat bags and, uh, and, and you know, troglodytes. Uh, you know, we, are, we, are, we, we can show that conservatives are forward thinking. And this is it. These small modular reactors 
and you and you place them in regional areas and you foster commerce there and you generate uh, very decent paying jobs yep. um which is exactly it's where it's all going and you, we have you, all you these coal fired power plants being yeah. decommissioned and and and, and that was if, if, yeah. yeah well the rule the rule yeah. should be if you're if we are going to decommission a, a coal fired power plant well then we 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 need to open up a, an smr a small modular reactor somewhere well, you could stick one where the decommissioned coal-fired plant was if, if you true. thought we needed to stop coal yeah. because it's already hooked up to the grid. Yeah, they don't need to be near water catchments. And I think, and actually what he said to me actually, which I think is very true, is that the political class have in the left, again, have just sort of, um, they come out with this general and broad argument, that, no, 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 the Australian people don't want, they don't want it. And that's because they're ideologically opposed to it. But if you put that in a poll, I mean, the public the, the public support is there for nuclear energy. Yeah. I don't understand why we sort of uh, why we tiptoe around it. I think yeah. we should really, really embrace it. Yeah. No. Well, that, that's an important essay to read in the mm. in the book there. Um, so Matt Canavan, Matt, Matt Canavan, Canavan book, of course, writes about yeah. that. And and actually, it's funny how that happened because I had the final, I actually had the final draft, and I. I did one final read through and I finished it and I thought, but this is a book about tomorrow and people have touched on nuclear energy, but no one has actually gone into nuclear energy. So I quickly called Matt up and I said, hey, can you get something to me in the next few days? I want to put this to print. I need something about on nuclear energy. And he, so that was his contribution. That's how that came about. Fantastic. Um, we mentioned uh, Morris Newman before, who, who I just mm. think is, um, you know, one of the great Australians and yeah. he's really driving a lot of common sense ideas if you read his uh, opinions, mm. opinion pieces in The Australian, et cetera. And his, his um, article here, his essay here is is amazing about the uh, influence of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so the, the other theme of this book, we mentioned freedom, prosperity, um, security is is the other really really big one, and um, and just the, the the menace of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and, and I'd probably overlay that with also um, his comments about Klaus Schwab and the um, the World Economic Forum and, mm. and what they're doing, and perhaps you know even being in cahoots with the mm. Chinese Communist Party mm. to try and bring about some great reset, which all sounds very conspiratorial, and you know I don't want to go down. It's not though. Here, but, it's but, but it's not. It's it's in our face, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, no, t- totally, totally. And just on Morris, Morris is a great Australian. He is such a patriot. He, I, I do consider him a mentor. He's a really good person and, um, and so humble too. And look, what he, what he touches on in his chapter about the Great Reset, like what we just said, it is happening. We see the political class uh, wanting to centralise power more and more. Uh, we saw this during the restrictions, what we just had. I mean, we had a Liberal Party virtually embrace curfews, even though the Victorian police down in Victoria said, no, 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 these don't work. They, they don't work. Yep. Yet we had those, so we had some of the New South Wales Liberal Party think this is such a great idea. And, and it's, again, it's just about, it's this control, control by the political yep. class over the hoi polloi. And that's what the Great Reset basically is about. It's about wealth redistribution, all this sort of stuff. Um, and we are, it, it is it is a very frightening thought. And, you know, the militarisation of uh, the police as well. I mean, never before, before COVID, we had never seen really, unless there were major, major events that had ha- happened, 
Um, we had never seen politicians and sort of police standing side by side all the time. Whereas we had that on, on our screens every day. Yeah. We had soldiers in the streets. And I mean, that, that, that resembles places like Myanmar, not Australia. Yeah, I, I think so, one of the, the yeah. chilling images of um, COVID was um, Victorian police firing rubber bullets into um, protesters, yeah. regardless of you know where you stand on vaccines and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, it's got nothing to do with that. It's way, just about freedom the, and about yeah. way over the top, heavy-handedness. Yeah. yeah. So, so Morris's essay, just getting back to that, um, the, the link then between you know the, the disturbing sort of parallels between um, what the World Economic Forum under Klaus Schwab, what, what they think mm-hmm. should be our future. You know, you will own nothing and be happy more authoritarian um, involvement of the state. And then the model that the Chinese Communist Party used to to govern their people. Um, And the World Economic Forum's embracing of Xi Jinping, you know, giving him a platform there earlier in the year to speak. I mean, this is obscene, isn't it? Um, What are these globalist elites up to? Oh, uh, well, well, I think it's funny, you know, I think it must be a mission to further impoverish the poor. I mean, it'd have to be climate change, all this sort of stuff. So they all go on. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we just saw in Glasgow. Every billionaire was there, multi-millionaires, all this sort of stuff, jets. I think there was something, I, don't, I forget even the figure of jets, all these private jets rocking up, yet they're all sort of supposed to be into climate change and, and you know, let's ban air travel and all this sort of stuff. It's a very hypocritical um, it's a very hypocritical issue, the whole climate change debate. Um, I, yeah, look. <laughs> I the CC, the I CCP know. World Economic Forum link, though, that, that to me is disturbing. Um, and, and climate change is, of course, tied up in all of that, even though the CCP are still building yeah. coal-fired power stations like there's no tomorrow. But it seems like there's this... Um, uh, the, when the, they're the expansionist. Their expansionist, right, they're expansionist, they're disillusioned liberal democracy, and it's almost like they, they want us to hate... Uh, where we've mm. come from and, and, and legitimise other models of governance, um, you know, perhaps, yes. you know, the, the, the authoritarian model that the, the CCP... Well, they keep chip, chipping, chipping away, don't they? They yeah, chip, they chip, do. chip away. They're trying to erode... They're trying to erode sort of the Western, uh, you know, world yeah. in that sense, um, yeah. and they dump on us whenever they can. They do. It, it's a real worry. And then we've got weak American leadership too. So I don't yeah. really know where we turn here. Yeah. But it's good that Peter, I mean, Peter Dutton's doing an excellent job as defence yeah, minister, yeah. and at Fantastic. least he's talking about it instead of ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist. Because a lot of people yeah. are going, hey, uh, China, look at what they're up to. Absolutely. And he's speaking the truth and the left is setting their yeah. hair on fire. Um, uh, our time's racing away. I'm really enjoying this conversation and I'm hoping uh, you've got time for a little yeah. uh, a little bit longer, um, Jake. But um, Amanda Stoker's uh, essay was was fantastic. Senator Amanda Stoker from Queensland, mm. LNP. Um, now, this, this might sound a little bit wonkish, but I, I want to explore this because I've, I've picked it up somewhere else. Maybe it was on the Quillette uh, website as well. But this... Um, uh, debate that Amanda has picked up on in America between what's called national conservatism and classical liberalism. And uh, it hangs off a particular conference that was held there. And uh, this tendency from some conservatives on you know, our side of the ledger, perhaps uh, going a bit far uh, and wanting to legislate morality, perhaps um, have a more um, interventionist um, economic policy 
i.e. Mm. on tariffs and, and this sort of thing. Yeah, are, yeah. are you across that debate? Because um, I'm sensing it's going to be a fairly important one for conservatives to understand. And I'm sorry to my audience if this sounds a little bit inside a baseball, yeah. but ideas have consequences. And I'm, I'm just interested whenever sort of a, a bit of a rupture appears on our yeah. side, I think we need to get across these things. Well, it's sort of where the Republicans are going now. I think that's what Amanda was definitely so, touching so this on. Is the, this. So she didn't mention the Trump phenomenon. So this is the, the Trump no. economic nationalist yeah, populist yeah. versus, um, you know, traditional Republicans. That's what she's picking up on there, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, that's right. And, and basically that it's more important now, I think, uh, for liberalism to, ex- I mean, trade liberalisation, this sort of stuff. I don't think that's the right route to go down. Um, all this sort of stuff because, again, we'll see. But, again, it comes from uh, this urge of national sovereignty because those, again, back on what Morris has has, uh, written about, about the global reset, all these political elites, uh, they're chipping away at us and everyone is becoming disillusioned. The worker feels like they're missing out. They haven't seen wage rises in, in, in years. Yeah. And, and, and that's exactly what those conservatives are tapping into. They're tapping into uh, that sentiment there and they want to, uh, which uh, rightly, rightly or wrongly, but they want to rectify that and to, and to uh, right wrongs and they feel that the best way to do that is to, uh, as you say, legislate, regulate, this sort of stuff and, and put tariffs. It's this nationalism streak, isn't it? Yeah. Now, now. I sense that Amanda is saying um, that's not a good thing, but uh, again, mm. I'm I'm a little bit torn because um, I think it's a reaction against jobs going offshore as a result of globalism. Um, so that's where this nationalism. Account. Let's bring our manufacturing back uh, home, which is Trump's big yeah. thing. In- which is the so- energy debate again. It all goes Correct. in a circle, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So so there's this tension within our side um, between classical liberalism and. Um, you know, economic nationalism, populism. You know, nationalism can be used as a dirty word. Um, people associate it with with fascism, but it's really, mm, you know, yeah. regaining. And that that's the pejorative that the left use. But it's really us trying to regain our sovereignty again, and and not um, become slaves to you know some globalist agenda that sends all our jobs offshore mm. and keeps us poor. Um, so yeah, all, all that to say, I think this is an important debate that you guys have have unearthed here that we need to get across. Jake, um, again, yeah. just conscious of the time, um, I know that you said you didn't want this book to be, um, you know, negative against uh, the political mm-hmm. class, but there are some critical elements to it. And I think Peter Credlin and yourself, both uh, in her preface and your introduction, uh, you know, you both referenced disappointment that we've had a conservative mm-hmm. government for eight or nine years now, and it's it really has been light on action, you know, and totally. I don't want to see, I don't want to see Labor get in. Um, and, and I think it's so important yeah. that we don't get so disillusioned. We don't, mm. you know, create a worse problem. But I think you wrote the phrase, um, the pesky political class uh, never misses an opportunity to do something. <laughs> That's true. That's How true. do we get over our frustration with our side of politics without throwing the baby out with the bathwater? Well, there's no political courage anymore, Lyle. I think that's the that's the short answer. Um, if you speak out, you remain on the back bench forever, and therefore you don't get promoted. That's that's basically how it is. I mean, something needs to change. Uh, unfortunately, the game that they're in uh, is votes. Everything's about votes. So if the primary vote went down so far, something will have. Someone has to get be in there, step in the party room, and say, "Hey, this isn't working." This isn't working. We need to uh, take back control. And I'd like to see that happen. I mean, we're chasing a fourth term 
And I'm not really sure what the big achievements are. The ABC has never been more out of control. Uh, We give them $1.1 billion of taxpayers' money. Why not move them to a streaming service? I don't understand that. Uh, They have like 55 radio stations or something like that. Um, uh, There are are heaps of things that could be done. Uh, Nuclear energy we touched on. They had just... Freedom of speech, 18C, reforming state-based anti-discrimination laws, which is all 18C at a state level. Yeah, I mean, correct. all of this sort of stuff. No freedom of speech. Um, nothing's correct. been done in well, these areas. Yeah. Well, even with even with the electric... See, the, it's the funny thing. I was thinking about it the other day. I mean, we had this ele- the electric vehicle debate. Yes. I mean, Scott Morrison went into the 2019 election uh, basically saying that electric vehicles, if we introduce them here, well, that will be the end of the great Australian weekend. You won't be able to get in the car and drive three hours away or something and come back. You know, you have to charge it and, oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. going to be chaotic. So we oppose Labor's EV policy, yet the other week we basically embrace, not only embrace it but go a step further. And, and it's like this net zero. So, I mean, never – we did not go into the last election uh, – promising to to go net zero and then all of a sudden we just cave in i don't know why we don't and i mean this is why the book was written i guess why don't we stand up and and basically why don't we be principled for once and say if you don't like it this is what we stand for if you don't like it uh use the chris bowen line don't vote for us and if they do if they do vote us out well then post the election we have to reflect and go well okay Clearly, this is a big issue and the public want us to do something about it. So let's tweak our policy. That's how politics should be done. Whereas we just, we don't stand for anything anymore. I mean, I, a lot of people don't see the difference between Labor and Liberal. And that's a fair enough point. I'm a Liberal through and through. But I can, I can really, uh, uh, you know, I I do, I do sort of empathise with those, with those arguments where people come to me and and say, I don't know what the difference is. Yeah, well, this election, of course, we're going to see, we've got, uh, Clive Palmer and Craig Kelly, you yeah. know, hundreds of millions of dollars going to that campaign. You've got the, the mm-hmm. Liberal Democrats. You, you've got this real splintering that's going on, One Nation, of course. Uh, so the, the centre-right is, is fracturing dangerously. Do you think we might end up Absolutely. with a period in the wilderness uh, where we learn to regain our spine and, and to come back actually fighting for mm-hmm. something? Do you think, um, you know, if, if the government does get a fourth term, it might be rewarding bad behaviour and we, we well, that's true. Well, well, that's that, that's the problem, isn't it? Because because labour is so bad, and I and I and I wrote that in my introduction in this book. Uh, uh, we we it's no longer good enough to win by default, and and that's and that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, whenever I speak to people, they go, "Oh, but Anthony Albanese and Labour, we you know, can't stand them," and I, and I agree with that too. But mm, I do too. It's just terrible. It's terrible that that's how. Yeah. It, it's a shame that we 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 embrace that uh, that mediocrity basically, that, that we just go, oh, well, uh, our side's better than the other side. I mean, no, but you have to, there's no point being in power if you don't do something. Yep. And, and I think, and that's what I'm getting frustrated about, and I think many people are. Yeah, absolutely. Jake, um, I, I know I said, uh, could I have 10 or 15 minutes of your time? You've given me 30 minutes. Uh, it's been a great <laughs> conversation. Right. I've really enjoyed it. I know we could talk all day. Um, yeah, I want to thank yeah. you. Thank you for... Um, putting this anthology of uh, political essays of some of the brightest centre-right thinkers in Australia. Australia Tomorrow, yep, yeah. that's it. 
uh, get your copy from um, where's the best place to get a Conaccord or or is there another place what what's your suggestion uh, look a- a- Amazon Australia Amazon Australia is is it's in the politics section there it's on the charts uh, you can go to conaccordpublishing.com.au or you could go to oztomorrow.com.au austomorrow.com.au and it's available Fantastic. also now in hardback Wow, very good. Well, sold over 6,000 yeah. copies, folks. Get your, um, this is your essential summer reading. Uh, we've got a, a long summer yes. coming up, important to get refreshed. Uh, Jake, really appreciate your time. Congratulations again on what you, on both the book and what you're doing with Alan Jones uh, on this new digital platform. And uh, it's just so encouraging to see uh, the next generation of conservative thinkers and thought leaders like yourself coming on and, and uh, you know, coming forward with initiatives like this. So really appreciate your time uh, on the Macquarie Street Thank Political you, Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. My second interview this week is with the up-and-coming South Australian Liberal Senator Alex Antic. He spoke to me last week from Medi Hotel Detention. Well, it's great to have Senator Alex Antic with me now live for those who are watching the live stream. Obviously, this will be going to our podcast viewers later. But Senator Antic from South Australia, thanks very much for joining me today on Macquarie Street. Thanks, Lyle. It's good to be here. Now, this is probably a bit of a come down for you, Alex, uh, in the last couple of weeks since you've been in, uh, in detained in the Medi Hotel uh, in quarantine. You've been on Tucker Carlson on Fox News in, in America, massive uh, audience there, and on one of my favourite podcasts, which um, I read in The Guardian is a conspiracy theorist podcast, uh, War and Pandemic with uh, Steve right. Bannon. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yes, how was that? Uh, this is a bit of a come down, I know, joining me today. It's not at all. You are the Tucker Carlson of Australia, as far as I'm concerned. So, um, no, it's not at all. It's great to be. It's good to be able to talk again and have a chat and catch up. And um, uh, but that was no. Look, it was a it was a you know mind blowing experience. They've got a massive audience, and there's a real interest, I think, in in what's happening here. And you know, I think we've got to be careful to uh, you know sort of tell things the right way, which means telling the truth. And um, you know, I think the Americans are pretty pretty blown away by what we've what we've given up freedom wise in the last. 18 months, um, and I think you know Aussies themselves are, are ready to uh, put all of this behind us and do it quickly. And certainly here in South Australia, we're seeing that. We're seeing that every day. That that noise growing louder. Uh, and so it was good to be able to talk about it. I think. Okay, well, let's just backtrack a little in for those who may not have been following your journey over the last couple of weeks. You were detained quite sensationally, in my view, at Canberra Airport, mm-hmm. having just uh, completed a two-week um, parliamentary sitting. And um, you were taken aside by police, journalists were there, it was recorded. And supposedly, um, uh, I, I guess this is how it seems to me, and you, you can explain this, but um, you, yep. you've decided not to disclose your vaccination status. Um, that's your right. Um, you're not an anti-vaxxer, I take it. Um, uh, and you're not anti-COVID vaccine, uh, I take it. Uh, but um, no, no, I mean, I think well, we, well, you know, we're going to respond to that, yeah. Yeah, no, well, look, no, look, I'm certainly not an anti-vaxxer by any stretch of the imagination. It's a, it's a pejorative term now that's been weaponised mm-hmm. by the left, frankly. It's a, a term which is growing in its definition. I see now that the, one of the online dictionaries is now saying that you're, an, you're not only an anti-vaxxer if you say you don't believe in vaccinations, you're also an anti-vaxxer if you say you don't believe in vaccine mandates. So, you know, I mean, that's yep. the trick here is just keeping the line being pushed out. But 
in its traditional definition. Definition. I mean, I am certainly an anti-vaccine mandate. I'll say that. Um, yeah. But I am not an anti-vaxxer, and uh, you know, it's sort of a shame that we have to even qualify that in this world. But that's what happens. So we'll just do it. So, so, um, so yeah. what are the rules in South Australia then? Um, you, you returned from two weeks in Canberra. Um, you, yep. you chose not to disclose your vaccination status. People can speculate on that. That's your business. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you will not disclose your vaccination status in South Australia, is it mandatory two weeks quarantine in a Medi hotel? A couple of things to say about that. First of all, um, I haven't talked about it publicly uh, because I, I just object to doing that. I think it's a uh, people's medical treatment is uh, medical care is uh, a matter for them and their families, and, and they shouldn't be required to do that. That doesn't just apply to me, that applies to everyone. I, that is the very basis of my objection to vaccine passports. Uh, I don't see what business it is of businesses and, uh, I mean, hospitals that are rejecting people from coming in now based on vaccination status, and we can come to that a little bit later. But no, I, I gave the authorities all the information that they were entitled to and uh, and that they asked for. And um, the, the rules have changed a bit, though, and, and that is the issue here is that back we've been travelling back and forth to Canberra during a time when it was travel was just not happening and there were you know times where the airports were just closed. On each occasion, um, we would either quarantine at home for two weeks, which we would, uh, or we would um, sometimes not at all when the rules changed. And I, I've obeyed the rules on every occasion. I, you know, I'm not someone that's so, going to tell so anyone to not obey the rules. Is um, there a rule now occasion, that says that so? So there is a. There's been a change in the rule from previous yeah. uh, the way previous way you've been treated as you've been travelling to and fro from Canberra. Yep. That yep. now says if. Um, if you know, a returning passenger won't disclose their vaccination status, and I agree that's your health information, no issue there. But is the rule now that if you if you're ambiguous about that, that you have to do mandatory quarantine in a medi hotel? Well, well, as I said, I mean, I, I told all the information I was required to, uh, and the decision was, I mean, actually, the decision was at first that I was just denied from coming home at all, which, as I pointed out. Is, is an insult to anyone. Does that apply to everyone? Does, does that apply yeah, to anyone? Well, it, I, it might. I mean, the, the rules have changed. So, I mean, I, and look, I, I must admit, I, I'm not an expert because the rules have changed, you know, 25 times in the last year and they just do. So the nuances of it, I'm not I'm not across. But in essence, um, you know, they, they do vary. They vary depending on the information you provide uh, back to them. Uh, and in this instance, they rejected my application to start off with. So I was just told you can't come home. Uh, there was an exemption for, um, you, you know, available for uh, people that are essential workers, which you know, I think that's the category I fell into. But uh, it was denied twice and then ultimately I applied for an exemption, made it very clear I was happy to quarantine at home, but um, they made it very clear that that wasn't going to happen and that there would be 14 days uh, in hotel quarantine. Now, the, the interesting thing about this is there is the discretion to allow people to quarantine at home regardless. Mm -hmm. Uh, of, of the information provided. And that is done with the home quarantine app that we've heard so much fanfare about in the States, it's an app that I'm not particularly um, comfortable with because it takes your biometric facial data and your GPS location, and it rings you, you know, once a day or twice a day, and you have to hold it up to show that you are who you are and you say you are where you are. Uh, and if you don't, the police come knocking, which is all very dystopian from my point of view. And it always sounded something like the CCP were doing in, in Jingjiang, to be honest, and I was never comfortable with it. But faced with the option of 12, 14 days at your cost, so several thousands of dollars, by the way, uh, in a hotel quarantine arrangement, or that, you'd take that. Uh, and th that has never been afforded to me. So, so, so you're, paying for your, you're paying for your stint? They're going to send me the bill, correct. They, they send everyone the bill. It's written into the legislation now, Section 25AA, I think it is, of the... Uh, 
emergency management act or something like that gives the uh bill to the person and i've had people okay, well, well i'm still uh, confused this. alex you know, i'm still confused because you say you don't know whether there's a rule that says if if someone you know chooses not to disclose their vaccination status mm. uh that they then have to be forced into this at their own expense. Uh, you, you can't find a rule that, that says that. Look, I don't, I don't know what the rules are. As I said, I mean, I, I told them everything I was required to and the decision was made. So um, I, I don't know what the rules say about that. Um, you know, there are presumably different categories for different people, uh, you know, as in, you know, depending on the answers you give. Um, but uh, here we are. And, it's, and I mean, the reality here is I've had five separate COVID tests uh, which are all negative over the last week, yep. and it's madness. Just madness. And that, that's, it doesn't make that's sense another, on any level. It, absolutely, and that, that's another issue, apart from the um, ambiguity about these rules, and, and that, that to me is really disturbing that um, there's, there's unclarity and that you can be treated like this. But, but then the, the other issue is the fact that you've been tested, you're negative to COVID, so it's pointless. And, and I think, you know, we all understand um, that in a pandemic and, you know, none of us deny that COVID's not a serious um, thing and, and it has to be managed carefully from a public health perspective. But the lack of common sense that we have seen, I think, has fed into people's suspicion of government. It's fed mm. into the, mm. the anti-vax uh, crowd. And, and I know that we don't want to use it in a pejorative way, but but you no. know what I mean? It's, it's fed into conspiracy theories. Uh, because of the inconsistency of the rules. And I think your situation just heightens um, fears and, and it dials the uh, levels of craziness up on, you know, on the extremes of, of this debate. I, th I, think that's, I think that you've nailed it. I mean, I, uh, and one of the reasons why I'm intrigued by this is I've, I've got an outstanding Freedom of Information application asking for this very documentation. I think it was the 29th of September I asked for SA Health to provide all the medical evidence they're using to rely on to support lockdowns and mandates. Uh, and, you know, it was only a week um, before I was detained here that I'd upscaled that to the Ombudsman. I mean, you have to ask some questions about the motives. Uh, I do, I do, I'm concerned about that. I mean, I, I, you know, that seems to be foremost in mind here, but we don't know. They keep saying follow the medical advice, but they won't show us. Uh, where is the medical advice that says that mandates are a good idea? You know, wh wh where is it? I mean, if people are not being or being sacked effectively or being told they don't have a job unless they take a vaccine and people won't show the medical advice to support that, uh, that's wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's just entirely wrong. Uh, yes. No, look, and, and we're getting to other aspects of the debate here, which is really important. Um, uh, look, I think um, I'm just going to say it. You know, I'm not anti-vax. I'm quite happy to say uh, on this live stream publicly that I've been vaccinated. I felt that was the right thing to do. I respect uh, other people's choices. I do believe it should be a choice. But uh, I guess we've got a way up to what would what would we have done as a society if um, if not enough people over that 70 to 80 percent, uh, now we're getting up into the 90 percent levels, and you can argue whether the, the harsh lockdowns have helped drive up the vaccination rates. And uh, I certainly don't believe in a whatever-it-takes approach. But I do think... You know, that 70 to 80 percent of Australians um, would have voluntarily done it because they wanted to um, protect the hospital system. I think that was an obvious um, risk mm. that we faced in this. But, mm. you know, what would our alternatives have been if the uptake of the vaccine had only been, say, 50 or 60 percent? Well, I mean, it seems as though there is a significant number of people in the community that did feel coerced. Um, in South Australia, we I've seen polling which suggests it's as high as 40 percent. Um, I've, I've done some of my own from my own office, which shows it's almost as high as 30%. So there's a bit of variation in there. Um, look, I think the question becomes, um, 
one of um, of choice. I mean, I think you have to say that. The argument that this would have overwhelmed hospitals is a little bit, um, you know, I mean, I don't know what the science is about that, and I'm never purporting to be a scientist. But, I mean, if this is a public health debate, then the same argument really could be applied to smoking or weight loss or, you know, and we're not we're not punishing people that refuse to give up smoking, although it's been, you know, muted. Um, well, they certainly so they're heavily by the federal well, government. Yeah, well, they do. They do. That's right. Um, so, look, the answer as to to uh, what would have happened is I don't know. Um, but what I do know is that people should never be forced into something at the risk of losing their job, their family and their livelihood. That is the case at the moment. That is what's happening. And what, the thing okay, I think so, is really so you, you think there's some doubt over you think there's some doubt over um, whether the hospital systems would have been overwhelmed if we didn't have vaccinations. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not offering an opinion on that because I just don't know. But what I'm saying is if, if, if the argument is about one of public health, then there are a myriad of other public health issues that we're not forcing in the same way. You know, we're not, we're not forcing people to lose their job if they don't lose 25 kilos. Um, you know, that, that, those things put an enormous strain on the public health system. Mm -hmm. So the argument about, um, uh, you know, about uh, public health and the strain on the system is I'm, I'm always a little bit, can, can I just ask what, what you're you're a senator? I mean, I'm only going on the information that I can uh, glean uh, through the mainstream media, and, and obviously, look, you know, I think we all have a distrust of mainstream media, so we, we look at other sources as well. And, and I'm always careful with that because there's a lot of information yeah, about COVID out there, and some of it's you know pretty pretty wacky. But you're you're an Australian senator; you would have better access to information than most of us, and, and you're not convinced that. Uh, we faced uh, the hospital system being overwhelmed. You, you don't think that's necessarily proven? I just don't um, know. That, I just would... I just don't know the answer to that. And, and one so of the is it better I... to have taken the you know to to um, give it the benefit of the doubt? I mean, I've spoken to doctors and nurses who who are in the health system, and um, mm. particularly a doctor a friend of mine uh, who goes into Western Sydney hospitals. Uh, he said there's no doubt they were under stress. The COVID wards were under mm. stress. Uh, with sure. patients, um, it was a real thing, and they were worried that if, if we didn't get the vaccination rates up high enough, um, that um, you know those hospitals wouldn't have been able to cope. Um, this was going back sort of September-ish. Um, wouldn't it be better to? Isn't it better to you know give the system the benefit of the doubt? Mm. Um, uh, because I, I, I agree with you. There's a lot we don't know about this COVID issue. It's a diabolical mm. issue. There's there's um, lots mm. of competing information. I think we're learning as we're going along, and so I've been willing as a citizen to cut the government some slack in terms of removing some liberties temporarily and encouraging us into a certain public health response because you want to you know, do the right thing as a citizen where I'm not just here for myself, I'm here for my, mm. my fellow citizens. So mm. you cop a bit of this stuff, knowing that there's a lot of misinformation out there. I'm just wondering what the alternatives would be from you know, particularly those who are yeah. very critical of the public health response. You make, you, make, you make a good point and you make a, a range of good points there. Actually, it is an invidious position. There's no doubt mm. about that. And I think part of the problem with the health response has been everyone's always been looking in the crystal ball. So we, we don't know because yeah. we haven't faced this before. So I think that is a very good point, a very difficult point. Um, what I would say to though, that, though, is that there are things that can't be thrown out with the bathwater, such as basic liberties. And forcing people to take uh, any form of treatment is a very slippery and very dangerous slope. So, I mean, I think a lot of people would have uh, and did get vaccinated in any event, which presumably would have taken the heat off the healthcare system. The thing that I struggle with is having reached 80% in a state like South Australia, for example, the health bureaucrats are now still rounding up stragglers, uh, using every trick in the book in order to force them to do it. Uh, and, and you really can't characterise it in any way other than that. And so... Uh, that is not what we signed up for. And by the way, when this started, it was two weeks to flatten the curve, but it was also we're all in this together. 
So the purpose of marginalising people, creating a two-tiered society based on medical choices, is non-negotiable for me. Um, I don't, and, and I think the other thing to bear in mind here is is that, that misinformation on COVID works two ways. I agree with you. There is a lot of nonsense out there, and and and, yeah. and it is difficult to filter through it. I think you know, I think you probably do a good job of that, and I hope I do as well. But I'll tell you this much: that is not being reported by the mainstream media, and many of the many of the uh, the medical authorities as well, I might say is that the vaccines do not present, pre prevent transmission. That is the main issue. And the main argument against mandates is that people come back to is, well, you're protecting others. Uh, you are not. The people that are spreading the disease at the moment are vaccinated. That is what's happened in South Australia. That's no criticism. That's just a medical fact. People have come to Adelaide uh, off, off planes, double vaccinated, and are now spreading you know, that throughout the community, which was inevitable. And is not a pro I'm not, I'm not criticising that. I'm just saying, this pandemic of the unvaccinated nonsense that is being spread by people that should know better has got to stop. Yeah, no, I, I agree uh, entirely with what you've just said in that last little section. Um, there, there's no doubt that, you know, by me being vaccinated, I can still transmit. Um, to me, the main argument for getting vaccinated for myself uh, was to um, lessen the risk of the, the hospital system. Um, I think particularly, you know, obviously older people and people with comorbidities and other vulnerabilities in their life should, should uh, look at it. And I'm just wondering, you know, from a public health perspective and, and you as a legislator, whether the, the level of debate around this has really bothered me. You know, could a better response and, and maybe hindsight's a wonderful thing, uh, a better response have been to encourage vaccination amongst uh, older cohorts, uh, vulnerable cohorts, rather than having lockdowns of, of healthy people. I mean, I've just endured, you know, a massive lockdown here in Sydney. Uh, yeah. It was terrible. It wasn't fun at all. And it, and, it, and it seemed to make no sense. Now, again, I was happy to cut the government some slack because we, you know, we don't always know completely what we're dealing with. But um, yeah. could we have taken different approaches? And, and are there some lessons uh, in the future? Oh, I think, I mean, look, I think we're going to be, it's a really good point. Once again, you raise a really sensible point, I think you raise. Um, I think we're going to be talking about this for decades. Um, mm. uh, the, the good parts about it, and there have been many. I mean, you know, we, we have seen good people in our, um, you know, nurses and, and uh, healthcare frontline workers who have done more than people like us, you know, particularly politicians, yeah. have done throughout the course of this, just where we sit around and talk about it. They're out in the front lines, they're doing good work and putting themselves at risk, by the way. So I think we're going to look at all of those things, but we're also going to have to look at what we've what we've missed. And I think there'll be plenty of that. Um, I think yeah. that you're absolutely right. I mean, lockdowns just do not work. It's a fact, simple fact of that. One wonders, and once again, it is a very dangerous position to be in to, uh, to be freelancing on medical stuff, which I'm trying not to do, although it's hard to do in an argument like this without going a little bit into it. But you know, the simple things of masks and, and hand washing. I mean, I don't really have a problem with that. I mean, people rail against masks, but, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I don't like wearing them either, but ultimately, yeah. and look, they may not be 100% effective, but they're a little bit effective. So, so, so just okay. help me understand. I've heard you say before on in other media interviews that lockdowns don't work. What's the basis for that? Because as much as I hate them, I can see yeah. a rationale for them when, you know, case numbers are out of control. Yeah. Well, I mean, Melbourne's the example, isn't it? It just hasn't worked. It hasn't stopped the transmission. But would, would it have been um, worse, though, without it? Um... Well, I mean, they're the sort of things that will be debated after the event. But I mean, they have to be weighed up in the fullness of, uh, you know, the, the yeah. court of opinion and the court of yeah. science, because ultimately there are a lot of downsides to lockdowns as well. People have, you know, business. I mean, businesses are struggling. I mean, businesses have been at the tip of the spear on this. They they are doing all yeah. the, and certainly in South Australia, they're doing all of the QR code checking. They're doing all of the mask yeah. monitoring. They're now being told, presumably, to check vaccine passports and so on and so forth. But they're also losing money. 
Um, it's the bureaucrats and the politicians and, you know, those people that work in the public system that have not felt this. We've been talking about this for 18 months. Uh, big yeah. business has done well. Um, you know, public sector has done well and small business has lost, but also people that are locked down and we know are higher risk of mental health uh, of, you know, there's been increased rates of alcoholism, um, yeah. you know, increased rates of domestic violence, all of these things, not to mention the incredible uh, landfill and uh, and waste issue of masks floating around everywhere, which you've probably seen as well. I mean, there are a whole host of things that, that the pandemic has thrown up. Uh, that are yeah, not I, never, I never find plastic straws in the creeks when I'm bushwalking, no. but I'm, I'm finding masks now. <laughs> masks everywhere now. So look, I mean, there's, there's always a second half, to, always a second side to this yeah. story. And I'm not sure, frankly, I'm not sure the political class are muscling up to telling it because it's easier just to, yeah. you know, yeah. dr drive with the narrative and do what you're told. Now that's all fine and good. We all want to do the right thing for the health of the community, but we also have to be live to the other side of the argument, which is lockdowns do have a very serious negative effect. Yeah, absolutely. I read a very interesting article a couple of days ago, Alex, um, an interview that you gave with a, a bloke I know, Matt um, uh, Andrews, uh, for Eternity yep. newspaper. And yeah. um, your background as someone who uh, whose family has come from Eastern Europe, I think was very um, insightful, I suppose, in, in helping understand why you're taking such a principled stand against mandates, against people losing their jobs, against bureaucratic overreach. Just uh, unpack mm. that for our audience. Yeah, it was it was really nice interview, and Matt was um, very generous to take the time to do it. I, I uh, he, he asked me, um, uh, you know, and he sort of asked me a whole range of things, but he asked me about um, my family background. And my family background is that my uh, my my dad and my grandma and uh, his brother uh, and actually uh, her husband, new, new husband, uh, came to Australia in the 50s and the early 50s from the former Yugoslavia uh, in, in Serbia, in fact, of what was Yugoslavia in those days. And they came here because uh, <laughs> effectively uh, she was very anti-communist. She was a small businesswoman. She was running businesses herself in a time when, frankly, women just didn't do that. A very strong-willed woman. And she did that when she came to Australia. But clearly the rhetoric around the dinner table that was anti-communist was being repeated at school by my dad and not going down all that well. Uh, and so the heat sort of uh, went on uh, and uh, they eventually decided for a host of reasons, ma mainly I think because of the, the possibility of starting a new life in a free country, uh, that they would leave and they came to Australia. And she was an extraordinarily strong-willed woman, uh, a very kind woman, but a very Serbian woman uh, which meant that you didn't often see that on the outside, but you certainly saw it uh, with actions rather than, uh, you know, demonstrative displays of uh, affection. But uh, she she was very principled and she was very, very anti-communist and, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, very involved with the Serbian Orthodox Church and uh, somebody who really, who really you know, <clears throat> knew right from wrong. So, look, I, I don't know. And he, he probed on the issues of whether or not that has framed your thinking. I haven't, I had sort of hadn't really thought about it in the context of, COVID and, and the mandate stuff, but yeah. it probably does. Yeah. I think it probably does do that. And uh, we're all a product of our surrounds. And she was, she would certainly, if she'd been alive today, would be very alarmed at some of the things she's seeing and some of the parallels to the country she left. I hear that all the time from people from the Eastern Bloc. Uh, in fact, they're the, probably the most, and you'll note that actually when you see the Freedom Rally marches is you will see a lot of Serbian, Croatian, yeah. Greek, Estonian flags, people who have seen this before. Yeah. And so this, this is why you're prepared to endure uh, two weeks in a, in a Medi hotel uh, for this principle. You're away from your, your wife and your three-month-old baby, uh, who's two-thirds of his life you've missed out on. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a high price to pay. Mm. 
Well, it is, but it's a very important issue. It's, it's a, it's a, I don't think I've ever felt more strongly about something in my limited time in Parliament thus far um, that I can recall, I probably have, but I, this is the one that really, really bothers me. I, I do think Australia has got some barnacles to shake off on this. I hope we do it. I, I don't want to see this bureaucratic overreach extended. I'm worried about what I'm seeing in states like Victoria. Every state around the, the Federation has gifted too much power to their bureaucrats, and we're now seeing the tail end of what happens when you do that, which is simply they never get rid of the, they never, they never give it back. And we all saw that. I think this is really, really important, Alex. Um, look, my, yeah. my one little bit of um, experience as an elected person was on a local council. I think you've had some experience on a local council yeah. as well. But yeah. uh, I saw yeah. just, just even through that experience, just how powerful bureaucrats can be and how important it is for the elected people to make sure they're the ones in control. They're the ones that have the authority from the people. And I think, you know, how much more in a, in a more complicated um, government than, than, say, the federal government or the state government, which are infinitely more com complicated and far more powerful bureaucrats. How do you see us... Um, I mean, you taking a stand, I guess, is, is shining a light on this. Uh, are you getting much support from your colleagues? Do they see the issue as sharply as you do? And, and do you think we're going to see the well, necessary pushback? Well, look, I, I hope so. Um, look, I think many do. Uh, I think many are concerned about the backlash that I've received in doing it. And that is a very sad state of affairs. And it's not reflecting on them. It's reflecting on the, you know, the situation that it is such a high temperature issue that people, um, you know, feel as though perhaps, you know, it's not it's not their fight to fight. But um, you're absolutely right about that. I, I saw the same thing. It's probably where I, I most became concerned about bureaucratic overreach was my time on local council as well, where effectively the administrative staff ran the council uh, and it was too easy, particularly for in that environment where most councillors were part timers to just provide what was served up to them and, and rubber stamp it. And, and I think that is a real danger. I mean, people uh, need to have a sense of accountability for their actions. I don't think bureaucrats do at the moment. I don't think certainly the health bureaucrats do. And I think that's a real a real worry because, you know, the thing that frustrates people the most is the lack of um, oversight, the lack of um, you know, sort of critical thinking and the lack of accountability. And uh, these are the issues we're going to face as a country. We, we can't drift down into this world of bureaucratic control and overreach. Remember, this was two weeks to flatten the curve. I don't think anyone actually believed it at the time. I certainly didn't. And I certainly, as soon as I saw those powers getting gifted away, uh, I knew we were in this for the long haul. So that, that is the challenge for parliaments all across the country now, and they should be doing it, is to wind back the emergency management powers in every jurisdiction. Yep. I've been calling it a liberty audit. We need to know exactly what was gifted. We need to know yep. when it's coming back and we need to know that it is coming back. So the PM has said in a speech to the Sydney Institute uh, this week that these powers have a use by date. He's starting to, to push back. Um, is that, um, you know, how do you feel about that? I mean, I know you're part of the yep. government, but you have been a little bit critical of the government. Uh, do, do you think... Um, the, the PM's word is going to make much of a difference, given that the states hold a lot of these powers. Yeah, they do. And that's the difficulty. The states do hold most of the powers. And it is a difficult position for the Prime Minister. And he has spoken about this before. He's spoken about his opposition to broad-reaching mandates, um, except for a few select industries. Uh, so that was good to hear last night. Uh, it was very, very encouraging. And I, and, I, and I think that message is well and truly alive, um, you know, in, in, his, in his mind. The issue is, what do we do when the states tell us to go away again. Uh, and that is my concern. That's why I crossed the floor to vote with uh, One Nation on the discrimination bill, the no COVID discrimination bill. You know, it was effectively something to stop 
people from being uh, marginalised uh, for their, 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 their decision Do you think if, um, if, if these states won't give up these powers, do you think there's scope in the future for the Commonwealth to uh, legislate in a way that Senator Hanson was seeking that would override uh, some of these states' powers? Do you think that sort of reframing of the Federation may become necessary if, if um, well, I think, these powers... Yeah, look, like there's, there's a whole different discussion about where we go to from a Federation point of view, and you know, I'll just park that for a minute because it's a really interesting yeah. one and a really good one. But um, but the issue of, um, of uh, legislative incursion... Uh, look, I, that's something I think we should have done already, personally. That's, that's my view. That's why I crossed the floor. Um, even though it wasn't a perfect bill, it was the best we had. So mm. I had to register my vote in support of that. Um, I think that's something we should have taken up. There is, I think, conjecture around the trap from legal circles as to whether there's a constitutional basis to do it. I don't, I don't agree with that. I think there is. We see discrimination bills for age, sex, gender, and hopefully soon religion. Uh, mm. So I think I'm sure there is a capacity to do that. But in the event that we were to go down that path, which I don't think there's any discussion of doing, um, the issue then becomes, can you get it through the Senate? Uh, it would certainly get my support, um, and I'm sure it would get the others' support, uh, but I, and it may well get One Nation's support, but the issue is that we still need three crossbenchers. We, I think, you know, one of those, and I'm not, I'm not sure you'd get them. So there, there are some, you know, political difficulties with it. Having said all of that, um, there are, I believe, administrative things that can be done at federal level. Um, we have the Australian Immunity Register, which is being effectively weaponised against people at the moment, in my view. Uh, people are being forced to display their vaccine status uh, and we control that data. So in my view is that things like that, things like funding, we should be saying to the states, well, guess what? If you're going to continue to rail over the top of your citizens, we're not going to support you anymore with that. Yeah. So they're the sort so of things that I see the most, uh, yeah, the most, the most uh, hope in. Um, but but obviously in a perfect world some sort of legislative provision would be good and I, and I think it does it does raise the question about some of the things you touched on there I mean I, I think I think you're probably on the same page about a bill of rights so I've always been very concerned about that um, absolutely because yeah. because of the you know the, the sort of the control of the judiciary then take correct but yeah. I, I remember Adam Crichton uh, about a month or so ago from the Australian wrote a really good piece about. I read that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you read uh, like re reviewing yeah, it, that it, position? It, it, it yeah. messed with my mind. <laughs> it messed with my it mind too, like which is why I sit here, you know, scratching my head and thinking about that because yeah. it made a lot of sense, but it sounded counterintuitive. Yeah. But you know, there are those discussions. I mean, you know, I'm a feder, you know, federation type federalist, and mm. you know, I, I I think it served us very well, but. It is interesting what this experience has done to that, yeah. frankly. I mean, yeah. we, we have seen the states no. with most of the whip hand. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, you're right. There'll be lots to analyse uh, coming out of this. Um, my hope is that this is, you know, as I said, happy to cut the government some slack. I think it's fantastic that you're shining a light and others on uh, some of the excesses of this. And um, I, I think, yeah, the alternative is just to, to drift along and, and um, sort of be like the frog in the proverbial pot. Alex, um, you've been very generous with your time. I did want to ask you one other thing, and you touched on it just a minute ago, um, and that is the religious freedom or the religious discrimination bill, which is uh, before the parliament. Uh, probably yeah. unlikely that it's going to um, be legislated before the election, would you say? Well, look, it's, it seems to have been parked a little bit at the moment. It's, I think, uh, before the House and off to a committee, I think. Um, so yeah. I don't know how long that will take. It, it's it's going to be an interesting point to see how many sitting days there are before the election. Yeah. Uh, look, it really is something we have to do our best to get through. To, to me, it seems uh, the bill is um, a fairly weak and anemic bill. Um, the you know, doesn't protect the Israel flowers of this world. Um, I think some of your colleagues have been instrumental in um, in getting the so-called flower clause taken out. 
I'm not sure that it would protect someone like myself who's being sued by two uh, drag queens for saying that drag queens are dangerous role models for children because of their gender fluidity aspect and their promotion of pornography. Um, so I, I don't think I'm protected. Uh, so, you know, I've spent $70,000 and a two-year legal nightmare so far that has no, no end in sight. And, and there's many, many others like me. And, and the one piece of the legislation that does seem really good is the protection for religious schools. But again, some right. of your colleagues are trying to have that taken out as well. So a lot of us are yeah. scratching our heads saying, yes, we want religious freedom, we want religious discrimination, Bill, but there's not much in it. No, it's, it's, a, it's a very, and this is one of the reasons why it's been worked up you know, for so long, getting the right, hopefully, I mean, the right, the right outcome, it's, it's been back and forward and back and forward, and it sort of then got lost in the COVID period. And um, of course, there were, I think, the third exposure draft. So it's been out and consulted on and back and forward and back and forward. But I mean, the long and short of this is that it's always going to be a bit of a compromise. I'm, I'm like you, I would have preferred the flower clause to be in, and I've said as much, I think it should be in. Uh, and I, I think this is, you know, part of the problem with having a system coming back once again to this bill of rights issue you know i don't i'm not suggesting we support that but this is the reason why we need to take these fairly clumsy unavoidable steps with discrimination bills it's really the only mechanism to protect but it's always going to be a compromise um and you're right about the the section about schools i mean that that does there, there are legis, legislate um, legislation around the, the country at the moment which is in, certainly there's some that's been proposed here in sa to amend our equal opportunity act so that schools can't hire and fire depending on views yeah. uh, and this would go some way to protecting that so there's good and there's there's bad ultimately it's a compromise and i guess it's a value judgment as to where it lands but i mean the problem with any politics is getting it through it's all very well to have my version my version would be would be different and you know perhaps somebody else's version would be different but politics is the art of the possible i guess which is yeah. uh, a bit a bit hard and a bit trite to say but you know I, I, there's an argument that getting you know, getting something through that kind of ticks most of the boxes and gets it done is, is a good thing. So um, we don't always want what we get, sadly, which is yeah. unfortunate. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. And I guess that's why advocacy is so important. And um, Alex, I, you know, yeah. just to, to round up, I think that's why many of us are so pleased to see your voice uh, on the national scene and, um, and, and a growing, rising voice now international. And um, because, because putting these issues of freedom, whether it's on um, on unreasonable mandates and, and bureaucratic health uh, restrictions or, or whether it's freedom of speech and freedom of religion uh, without advocates, uh, these freedoms uh, do get eaten away and we are seeing that sadly. So so thank you so much for all you've been doing, Alex, and uh, really appreciate your time today. You've been very generous with your time. My pleasure and thanks for having me on. Just as a final word there, I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I think we all come from the same place, which is we just want Australians to be ha healthy, happy and free. And um, you know, people get to it in a different way and we've all got different views on it. But I think ultimately that that's the point here. No one's looking to see COVID flourish, but we just need people to be, we need to be striking the right balance. And you're right, we have to make sure that there are people in our parliaments that are protecting freedoms because they are hard fought yeah. and they don't come back. So we have to be on top of that issue. Yeah. Well, we appreciate your courage, Alex. Thanks so much. And we wish you and your family a, a Merry Christmas. Thanks, Lyle. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for Macquarie Street for 2021. Thanks so much for your company. I hope you'll join me again in 2022 for another year of the best political commentary that you won't get from the mainstream media. I just want to give a shout out and a, and a special thanks to Dave Pello and his team at Good Source News for their volunteer efforts to help produce uh, and edit uh, Macquarie Street each week. I really do appreciate their support. 
Well, in the meantime, I hope that you and your family enjoy a happy and a holy Christmas. God bless.